0: Uh, just a couple of announcements while everybody's finding their seat. Uh, the Camperete garage sale is scheduled for April 28th and 29th. Starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, goes until 2 p.m. If you have any furniture, clothes, toys, uh, any kind of items that would be good for a garage sale, you can donate them to uh, Camperete, and then that's sold for uh, in order to provide funds for the transportation of the kids up to... Uh, up to uh, Camp this summer. So if you have any questions, uh, direct them to Jeff Phipps. Also, we're planning a baptismal service. Not sure when that's going to be. I've got two or three people who have indicated that they would uh, be interested in being baptized. And so if you are or if you have children that are, then please let either let me know or let Pam Richards know. The third thing to let you know about is that, in conjunction this weekend with the observance in Israel of Yom HaShoah, which is the Holocaust Memorial Day, there is a, (coughs) excuse me, walk of our march of remembrance. This is the kind of thing that goes on around the world at different places in order to remember uh, the victims of the Holocaust. And it starts Sunday afternoon. Registration is between 12 and 12.45 12 p.m. Uh, and that takes place at um, Westbury Baptist Church, which is located on Hillcroft. And you can look that up at uh, Westbury Baptist Church on Hillcroft. And there's a 1.1-mile walk to um, to Uh, Beth Israel, which is on Brazewood Boulevard, and um, Pam and I are going to that, and we're going to be walking, so if you're interested, uh, let me know, and then there's going to be a Yom HaShoah event at uh, Congregation Beth Israel from 3 to 4.30 p.m. on uh, on Sunday afternoon, so if you're interested uh, in that, you can let me know. Uh, procedure. Scripture says that at the instant of salvation, we receive an eternal, irreversible, permanent gift of eternal life. We are adopted into God's royal family, and we are uh, forgiven. But when we sin, we still need to be cleansed, forgiven for ongoing fellowship and our walk by the Spirit. So we always uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word uh, through confession of sin which is simply admitting or acknowledging to God in silent prayer whatever uh, sins need to be confessed and then there's instant cleansing and forgiveness based on that promise in first john 1 9 so we'll bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer i'll open in prayer let's pray Father, we're thankful that we have this time to come together to study your word, to come to understand what you have revealed to us better, to think in terms of how we serve you and how we make decisions in life in light of what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that as we study and reflect and think about your will for our lives, that God, the Holy Spirit, would help us to understand uh, the truth of Scripture and to apply them and help us to be able to apply them in the decisions we make on a daily basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've been studying in 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel 23, there are a number of circumstances where David, being pursued by Saul, seeks God's guidance as to how to handle uh, the rumors that he has heard about Philistine incursions and attacks on the cities, and so he seeks God's guidance. And this is during a time of special revelation when God either directly to David, because remember David is also a prophet even though his office is king, uh, as well as through um, the high priest and the ephod on the, uh, the high priestly ephod and the Urim and Thummim, God communicates directly. And passages from the Old Testament where there's direct revelation dealing with the will of God, have often confused people who do not make these kinds of important distinctions between the Old Testament period and the dispensation of, of uh, the dispensation of the law, the uh, age of Israel versus the Church age in the New Testament, the time of a completed revelation in uh, the canon of Scripture. So there's a lot of misunderstanding, as I pointed out last time, and I summarized some basic things we need to know about the will of God and some basic things that are misconceptions about the will of God. So briefly summarized, you've heard it said that God has a perfect will for every decision that we make in life. That's really the, the, the every is the key word there. Every single decision there's either one that's on the uh, center of God's will or not. Uh, that's the idea that is often presented. We have to live in the center of God's will and that God reveals to us precisely what that will is in every decision. And I pointed out last time that if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then every day we make thousands of decisions. I know from um uh things I have heard that a school teacher is one of the most stressful positions because a school teacher has to make about 15,000 decisions a day whereas most people make about 5,000 and some people make less than that and every decision is uh supposed to be a stress producer so if every decision has to be made in light of God has one perfect decision then that's it makes it extremely rugged making decisions so how do we go about decision making and the will of god <clears throat> you've heard it said perhaps that one of the keys to discerning this will is an inner state of peace or tranquility when that decision is made and as i pointed out that is a problem with basic it comes from a mystical viewpoint of christianity so my point is it's not biblical it's a form of mysticism and it's very confusing and distressing for most believers. So we're looking at the doctrine of the will of God. First of all, we have to define terms. The term will of God is used a lot of different ways. Sometimes we'll see an event that occurs, and we'll say, well, that's God's will. Subtext, it's God's fault. How many times do you hear? Do we hear that? Or we've done that ourselves. Well, that's God's God's will, and we're really just blaming God for the situation. Other times, we're just using it in a dismissive way, uh, rather than thinking about personal responsibility or accountability. Other times, we may be talking about the will of God, and we're seriously looking for um, guidance from the Scripture as to how to make a a, a wise decision. So the term "will of God." as defined through, by the, theologians in basically three ways. Now, there's a lot of different terms that are used to describe each of these, so I'm going to pick three ways that I'm going to talk about this, and there are subcategories that I'll, I'll mention or synonyms. So <clears throat> the term will of God describes three aspects of divine volition or God's will in relation to his creation. God's will is expressed towards what he desires his creatures to do. Okay, so the first category is called God's sovereign will. And God's sovereign will is directed towards all of his creation, both sentient and not. And it describes the idea that he brings to pass that which he wills to take place and or what he has decreed. That's how it's usually expressed. So sometimes this is also called the decretive will of God from the word decrees. It's called the sovereign will of God. It's called the secret will of God, emphasizing the fact that we don't know what it is. God has a... Uh, Has in His sovereign will that which He will allow or determine to take place, depending on how you want to emphasize things. Tomorrow, we don't know what they are. We will not know what He allows to transport uh, uh, to transpire tomorrow until it happens. That's why it's secret. We don't. We can't know it. We'll never know it. We can't say. I need to know what God wants me to do tomorrow in terms of His sovereign will because. It's never revealed. So we can't, when we say, What's God's will for me to do tomorrow? It can't be referring to the sovereign will of God. Sometimes we refer to this as the uh, permissive uh, will of God because within his sovereign will, he allows his creatures to make sinful, immoral, wicked, evil, foolish decisions. And that, so that's within what he allows. To take place. So, um, <clears throat> that is a, a, a part of, of that, that definition. That's part of understanding that. So the g- concept of sovereign will includes his permissive will, and that includes the acts of sinful creatures, which God allows to take place during a temporary period in time in order to demonstrate the principles of his will towards, uh, and his nature and his grace uh, throughout human human history. The permissive will of God means that God allows human beings to make decisions that are wrong and to experience the consequences of their own uh, failures and bad decisions. God does not coerce human volition to some degree. Now, there are times, I think, that God creates, uh, as it were, a ch- uh, in a situation where you're, we're boxed in. We can't make any other other decision. And it becomes obvious that that's the direction that God, God takes us. But that doesn't involve our eternal destiny decisions related to salvation or the spiritual life. So God's sovereign will is a hidden secret uh, will of God that is only known in terms of what happened. We only know it after the fact. Second category god 's moral will sometimes this is also called his revealed will because he has expressed this through special revelation of the word of god it 's not expressed through general revelation it 's only expressed through special revelation. These are the commands to do or not to do thou shalt not or thou shalt those are the commands that express the posit- the um, the, the moral will of God. So we, I will refer to this as either God's revealed will or God's moral will. Sometimes it's referred to as God's directive will because he directs us specifically through the commands of Scripture. Another term that is sometimes used is the idea of, um, of God's having specific will that God does have specific will in certain situations. Um, Those are expressed in Scripture. God has uh, functional or operational will or geographical will. Those are some other other terms. But these are all in the church age expressed through special revelation. God tells us. God's not playing a shell game with us. He's not playing hide-and-seek with his will. God wants us to do what he wants us to do. Uh, whenever God had specific missions in mind for anyone, either in the Old Testament or New Testament, God specifically told them what to do. Now, there are times, as we'll see, that, that people said, I, I'm not going to do it. We can think of Gideon. We can think of Jonah. Uh, probably uh, think of some other people. Balaam uh, would be another example where uh, they disobeyed, uh, disobeyed God. Judges. Uh, chapter uh, 6, 14 through 16, we have a, an example of this. The Lord said to Gideon, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? What's God's will to, for Gideon? Go deliver the, your people from the Midianites. It's clear, specific, revealed will. And Gideon sort of balked at this as we can see, his resistance in verse 15, O oh Lord, how can I do that? I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm from the smallest uh, clan and the weakest tribe. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, in verse 16, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So that's a specific statement of God's will. It's revealed. This is what I want you to do. As I pointed out last time, later in the chapter, when it gets right down to the situation where Gideon's going to have to go into battle, He tried to avoid God's will. That's how I understand that. He puts out the fleece and he prayed, God, if this is what you really, really want me to do, I want the the fleece to be wet in the morning with the morning dew and everything else dry. Gideon thought that would be impossible. And so he would avoid what God told him specifically to do. It's very clear what God wants him to do here and later on in the chapter. And then when God did that the next morning, he got up and the fleece was wet and everything around it was dry, that uh, Gideon said, well, maybe God really didn't get the point. Maybe this was an accident. So he said, let's do this again, God, and if you really want me to defeat the Midianites, I want the fleece to be dry and then everything, the ground surrounding it to be wet. And so the next morning that happened and it was pretty clear that Gideon wasn't going to be able to come up with something that was that was too hard for God and so God would make it made it clear to him it was already clear to him and that's a problem with a lot of questions that believers ask we've all done this i want to know what god wants me to do but we really don't uh, it's clear in scripture what the lord wants us to do in many many cases so uh, we we just want to do something different you have another example of the um <clears throat> Of the will of God in Ezekiel uh, chapter Four, uh, verse one, you also send a man take a clay tablet and lay it before you, and portray on it a city Jerusalem. So God is speaking to to Ezekiel, and he wants him to do something he's going to create a visual aid that is going to predict what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and so it's a specific revelation, exactly what he wants. Uh, wants uh, Ezekiel to do, so these are examples where God has specific things in mind that he is uh, he wants people to do. Uh, another example this one from the from the New Testament in Acts chapter ten, this is when uh, uh, Peter is uh, having his time with the Lord and he's given a vision, and there's this big tablecloth that comes down from heaven and there's all these Unclean animals, unclean food that's laid out, and God says to him, take and eat. And kosher Peter says, not at all. I'm not going to touch it. He's very self-righteous at that point, and God is directing him to do this. But he, he hasn't quite processed this yet because in the law, he's been told not to eat these things but he hasn't processed the dispensational shift that's occurred that Christ on the cross is the end of the law. And so now God is making it clear to him that that which was unclean under the Mosaic law has now been made clean because these were ritual distinctions, not distinctions related to an inherent problem. Just as a side note, that passage is one that, that is is really important to understand that this wasn't, didn't have anything to do with diet. Every decade, somebody comes out with a what would Jesus eat type of diet, and they, they think that if you eat according to the Mosaic law, you're going to be healthier. Well, in some cases, that might be true. It might not be true, but that had nothing to do with why God gave the Mosaic law. Because between the time of giving of the Mosaic Law, don't eat trafe. Trafe is a word for non-kosher food. Don't eat trafe. Don't eat shellfish because they're scavengers. Don't eat uh, pork because of what pigs eat. And all this other people say, oh, that had to do with health. Well, and they couldn't cook it right. That's especially That might apply to pork. Well, wait a minute. In Acts chapter 10, God didn't say, okay, now it's clean because I've taught you how to properly prepare it and cook it. God didn't say that. The point is, the cross is what makes the difference, not a new understanding of how to cook certain kinds of food. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. It's all spiritual, uh, it's all training aids for teaching certain spiritual truths. So what happens in Acts 10? You have uh, Peter who has uh, been praying, and he sees this vision. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision: an angel of God uh, coming and saying to him, uh, or this was it, Cornelius rather. Peter's already been had his vision, and uh, the the angel appears to Cornelius and. And when he observed this angel, he, he um, Cornelius was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. You know, it's always interesting. I'll read a passage like that and it suddenly I see it, see something new. Okay. Here's direction from God. This is what's God's will for Cornelius' life at this point. Send somebody to go get Peter. Notice I just went talked about the background. Peter sees the vision, uh, determining what's clean and what's unclean, and he's making this case that I'm not going to eat the unclean Lord. Don't, I won't touch it. Who's he living with? He's Yeah, some of you got it. He's living with Simon the Tanner. A tanner is somebody who's working with dead animal skins. A tanner would be almost perpetually ritually unclean. Living in his house would render you ritually unclean. And so we almost see a level of of hypocrisy here or confusion on the part of Peter that he's living in the home that's always got this cloud hanging over it because uh, of what the tanner does. He's, He's ritually unclean. And yet, when God says, e- eat, the, eat the traif, Peter won't eat the traif. So anyway, it's always little things like that that pop out of the text for you. Okay, that has to do with the fact that God does have specific things at specific times for people. But it's always given as a result of direct special revelation. And then the fourth category is is God's overriding will. And this to me is is very comforting. I've prayed many, many times in my life as I've had important decisions to make. Lord, don't let me make a foolish or stupid uh, decision here. I don't want to regret this. Um, And so sometimes we make decisions that are contrary to God's sovereign will. This happened with Jonah. God's sovereign and directive revealed will was for Jonah to go to Nineveh. It was his revealed will, and because Jonah eventually made it to Nineveh, we know that it was God's sovereign will. But Jonah says, I'm not going to do it, Uh, and he's going to hop a ship, and he's going to go to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. It's like God's coming to him and saying, I want you to go take the gospel to Washington, D.C., and you said, no, I'm not going to do it, and you hopped on on an airplane to go to Los Angeles. That was He just went completely in the opposite direction. But God overrode his decision so that eventually Jonah ends up right where God wants him to be. And that's the way it is with us. If God has a specific geographical will or some other specific thing for us to do, then God is going to uh, override whatever decisions we make. We can't miss it. And if we are truly, you know, if we're believers and we're trusting in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path." So if you're walking with the Lord by faith, trusting in him, then that's even more true. You're really focused. I want to make the right decision. God is going to direct your paths. He may not do it overtly. What we want is something overt. I want a sign. I want God to tell me to go to this college or that college. Last week, last lesson, I used uh, somebody who God wanted them to go to Texas A&M. And all the Aggies probably said, gig because as far as they're concerned, that would be the only place God would ever want anybody to go. And uh, they tried. To, they were going to go to Texas, go to University of Texas, and God said no, and He wouldn't ever let that happen. So all the Aggies were happy. But it would happen the other way too. Somebody where God wanted you to go to University of Texas, and you said no, I'm going to go to A&M. That God is going to prevent you from ever uh, bringing that decision to fruition. He's going to work out the details so you end up. Uh, at University of Texas. God is going to direct our paths covertly so that even if we start off making the wrong decisions or desiring to go in the wrong direction, God is eventually going to shut things down and we're going to end up um, doing what exactly what God wants us to do. It's, he, he is going to bring that about. Okay, let me put this little diagram up here for understanding God's sovereign will and his moral or revealed will. On the left, we have a circle that describes God's sovereign will. All of the things that God has determined will happen or he will allow to happen within human history. On the right circle, this circle describes the the God's moral and revealed. Will this is all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots that are in Scripture, they will overlap because part of God's sovereign will allows people to do that which God has revealed to, for them to do. So that's the overlap. But what happens in human history is what's over here. What God requires of us is over here, And when we ask the question, what is God's will for my life, uh, we, we can't determine this, so we have to focus on the revealed will. What has God revealed that I should do? And if I am doing what God says to do and avoiding that which God prohibits, then God is going to direct my paths and I will... Uh, it will bring about what God desires uh, for me to do. Okay, so in this chart, the circle here is that moral revealed will of God that is specifically stated in Scripture. Uh, it, the, the boundary line is defined by all of the mandates, the imperatives, and the prohibitions that are in Scripture the thou shalt, the thou shalt not. That's how we know God's will. We have to know what God's Word says. It says things like, husbands, love your wives. It says things like, pray without ceasing, walk by the Spirit, uh, give thanks for all things. That's the parameter. So if we're not grateful, then we're outside of the w- revealed will of God. If husbands aren't loving their wives, then they're out here. They're outside the revealed will of God. If we're not uh, praying, praying without ceasing. If we're not developing our prayer life, then we're outside that line. We're not living in God's will, and that is, but that's defined by God's revelation. So it is the objective Word of God that gives us the answer to the question: How do I know God's will? Because anything else is asking God for some kind of special revelation. And we believe that God's special revelation ceased at the end of the first century. Now, a lot of people balk at that idea and say, well, well, can't God still reveal his will to us? Yes, he can, but that's not the question. The question is, does the Bible reveal that God has ceased revelation? And further, why would he do that? Yes, the Bible clearly teaches in first Corinthians thirteen eight to thirteen that God is going to cease the revelatory gifts, and why would he do that? Because once we have a complete canon, the question the issue is, are we willing to trust it? See, if we still are going to rely on God continuing to to give us specific direction, then we're not trusting what He's revealed to us. And that's one of the big tests in the church age: is to trust what God has said. Now, even in the Old Testament, even in the period when God was still giving special revelation, how many people did God reveal Himself to on a day-to-day basis? Not many. Not many. It was re- it was pretty much restricted to those who had specific roles and responsibilities in leading, especially during the period of Israel, uh, the age of Israel from Abraham to the cross, specifically in terms of the prophets, the priests, the kings, the leaders of Israel. It wasn't the everyday person that had the access to this kind of special uh, special revelation because they had a partial or incomplete revelation in the Old Testament, that was uh, sufficient for giving them guidance. So we have to understand those dispensational distinctions in relation to God's God's revelation. So all of that defines our terms, God's sovereign will, God's God's moral will, uh, what we do with the concepts like operational, geographic, those, the specificity of God's will, and then um, uh, God's um, overriding will second point is that to go over some specific verses i want to talk about each one specific verses on god's sovereign will god rules that's what sovereignty means he rules from the heavens because he is the creature, creator this takes us back to the understanding genesis 1 And two, that God is the creator, and there's a distinction between creator and creature. And as a creator, God makes the rules. A lot of people don't like that after the fall because they are antagonistic to God. Romans 1, uh, 18 to 23, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But God rules. He determines what is. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. who are the host of heaven? The term host is an antiquated English word that means army. In the Hebrew, it's Sabaoth, which means the armies of heaven. That's the angels, all of the angels. So he does according to his will among the angels in heaven, that would include both the uh, fallen as well as the elect angels, and among the inhabitants of the earth. Not making a distinction between believer and unbeliever. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? He's not accountable to anybody. That's the sovereign will of God. Proverbs twenty-one-one shows that God directs the thinking of, of people, including leaders. That doesn't mean he makes their decisions for them, but he guides in a covert way. Proverbs twenty-one, one: the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. That would be any king or ruler or president or prime minister or mayor or someone in leadership that God directs them. God rules from the heavens as to what he is going to bring about uh, in history. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, this isn't about salvation. Or spiritual growth. This isn't related to that. This is related to other factors in terms of of human history. Revelation four one, the beginning of the prophetic section of Revelation, from Revelation four to the end of uh, or the midpoint of Revelation uh, uh, twenty two. We have a pr- prophetic section that is yet f- fulfilled. It's all in the future. And John writes that after he's been given the visions of the first, of the second, and third chapters, he says, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, this would be an angelic voice, says, It's like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Notice the language there. What must take place. It's the sovereign will of God. This is what will take place in the future. So some things have been revealed to us in terms of God's sovereign will. Ephesians one eleven is another key passage. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, Paul says, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Let's start at the end. The counsel of his will is the ultimate determiner in God's sovereignty. It's his will. Uh, He works all things after the counsel of his will, which means he has a sovereign plan, and he's going to bring to fruition his plan. This isn't talking about salvation, okay? The word predestination is used there, and a lot of people think that uh, because of the influence of Calvin, you're either predestined to heaven or you're predestined to hell. That's not how it's used. Romans 8, 28 to 30, we are predestined to conform to the image of his son. The concept of predestination is, is to create a destiny or a goal ahead of time. So what is God's destiny or design for each believer? according to Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. We are to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the destiny that God has for every believer, and he is working in our lives to conform us to the image of his Son. That's the destiny. That's the end game in God's mind. And so he is working in your life, in my life, in order to conform us to the image of his son. So in the past, God said, this is the destiny of every believer in Jesus Christ, is to be conformed to Jesus. And so this is what I'm working in their lives. So um, that's what Paul's describing here. We have been in the past predestined. God has identified this as our destiny and that's his purpose, to bring this about. And he works all things after the counsel of his will. Very similar to the wording of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, the language is very similar. So God has uh, this, th- a sovereign will to bring us to this point. Now, that doesn't exclude our volition in the process. Romans nine nineteen. The only part of this that I'm going to talk about is the last, last phrase: "Who resists God's will? We can't. We can resist His moral will because we can all sin and we can all disobey Him, but we can't resist His sovereign will. Uh, God has decreed certain things, and we can't resist that. We just don't know what it's going to be. That doesn't mean that God makes the decision, but He allows certain things to happen." as a result of giving us uh, personal freedom. Third point, the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. That's his sovereign will. We can't know it. It's secret. It's unrevealed. It's unknown. It's hidden. Uh, He's not going to tell us what it is. Tomorrow we will discover it, and it will be a surprise. We may think we know what's going to happen tomorrow, but... We don't. So God's sovereign will is secret, unrevealed, and unknown. It can't be known until after the fact. Human history once transpires the outworking of God's sovereign plan. That's the only way we're going to know it is once it happens after the fact. Fourth point, we can only know the specifics of God's revealed will. Okay, that's the fourth fourth point. Let me see what I've got for a chart here. Okay, God's mor- we only know the specifics of God's moral, revealed, or moral will. That includes all the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions of the Scriptures. So God's moral will are commands like don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells Abraham, go and leave your family behind. Leave everyone behind and go where I'm going to take you. Go to the land I'm going to show you. Uh, He gave commands to the Israelites to enter the land and to completely annihilate the Canaanites. That's God's moral will. That's his revealed will. That is what he has uh, told uh, each of these uh, individuals to do. And then in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. That's God's revealed will. But then you have God's sovereign will. His permissive will. He told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's his revealed will. But what did they do? They ate. He allowed them the freedom to disobey him. Uh, So that's God's sovereign will. He allowed them to eat. Uh, Second, he told Abraham to leave his family behind. Abraham disobeyed him. And he took his nephew Lot with him and his father. So... Abraham disobeyed, that's part of God's permissive will. So his sovereign will allows for human disobedience. Israelites were told to enter the land of Canaan, but they were afraid of the Canaanites. They failed to trust God, and so God took them through a disciplinary procedure for the next 38 years before he allowed them to go into the land. And it says, do not murder, but God used the illegal execution of Jesus to bring salvation to the whole world. It violated Roman law. It violated Jewish law. And it was murder. It, he was totally innocent. But God used that to bring about the salvation of the world. So fourth fourth principle, we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. We can't know the specifics of the uh, sovereign will. <clears throat> we can only know the precepts, mandates, prohibitions of Scripture. For example... Um, In the New Testament, there are 565 imperative, okay? That uh, includes prohibitions. Positive commands, pray without ceasing. Negative commands, um, don't commit adultery. So you have positive, negative commands. Those are 565, but there's other ways grammatically to express commands that are somewhat difficult to, a little more difficult to identify and participles and hortatory subjunctives also express commands. So all of those together draw that circle. As long as we stay inside the circle of obedience, we're in the moral will of God. When we sin, we're outside the moral will of God. Romans 2.17 and 18, part of Paul's indictment of, of, uh, of the Jews for failing to obey God, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew. And rest on the law. They were relying on observance of Torah for salvation. You make your boast in God. And, plural verb, y'all know his will. Sovereign will or moral will? Moral will. They don't know his sovereign will, but they know what God has revealed. You know his revealed will, and you approve the things that are excellent because you're instructed out of the law. So we can know God's revealed will. We can't know his unrevealed will. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when you say, what's God's will for me my life? God's will is to be grateful for everything, not just the good things, not just the things you like, but also the things we don't like. Be thankful and give thanks in everything. Then in first S four thirteen another specific statement of the will of God for this is the will of God your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now that's a broad term that includes every kind of sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. Premarital sex, homosexual sex, every kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage is prohibited in this statement. That's not God's will. So it's very clear the boundaries for the will of God. Another passage, clear prohibition. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. The context is very clear. It's talking about marriage. And, And I've seen this violated time and time again over the years. My parents were drilling this into me very young. Parents need to teach children a lot of advanced concepts or start laying the foundation long before they're really able to comprehend what they're being told. But I remember from a very young age, once I was a believer, I knew when I came home and I had some new friend, my the first question out of my mother's mouth was gonna be what? Y'all know this. Are they a believer? that meant i knew that question was coming from the time i was 6 years old that was the going to be the question that laid the foundation so when i came home when i was 16 years old and said i got to have a date for this function on and i'm going to ask so and so my mother would say are they a believer i mean that was drilled into me from childhood and i knew that and i knew if i came home as i did one time and when i was in junior high I had a friend, my mother said, well, I haven't heard you mention him before. Is he a believer? Uh, No, he's Jewish. Well, have you given him the gospel yet? That's how parents train children. You don't wait till they're 18 or 19. If you do, it's too late. You start when they're 2, when they're 3, when they're 4. You drill these things into them so that they know. I mean, I I was not about to – when I was in high school and college, if I came home and and I wanted to date somebody – you know, I knew that when I got older, it was, I don't think I ever dated knowingly ever everyone out with an unbeliever, but that was, that was drilled into me. But I, when I first became a pastor, I had a lot of older people in my congregation whose children were still in the community. It was down in Lamarck and I had a lot of, and, and they didn't come to church. I'd say, why? Well, so-and-so married somebody. Are they a believer? No. Nine times out of ten, the reason their children didn't come to church was because their children had married an unbeliever or somebody who was a liberal Christian or legalistic Christian, or something like that. It was a major problem. Believers need to marry somebody who is, who's going to have a similar spiritual momentum to them. That's also there. I've seen some mature believers marry immature believers. That's also a source of problem. So there needs to be a similar uh, spiritual trajectory there. And when this doesn't happen, it creates creates problems. Fifth point, therefore God's sovereign will includes his moral will, overlaps his moral will, but his moral will clearly is not always his sovereign will. He allows or permits sin to take place. The difference is that his permissive will, that is what he allows, uh, because uh, he allows creatures the freedom to fail and to make bad choices. We learn, I I don't know about you, but I've learned more from my failures than I probably have from my successes. And fortunately, that's grace and God forgives us and we move on. So conclusion on this point, when the creature does what God has prohibited, then his revealed will is outside his, his decreed will. Let me say that again. When the creature does what God has prohibited, then his revealed will is outside his decreed will. Okay, what I'm saying there is that when we disobey God, we're outside of the, of the revealed will of God, but we're inside the sovereign will of God. He permits that. He allows that. I may have not stated that right. Sixth point. Usually we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision. You may become unemployed. What am I going to do now? What's God's will for my What is God doing? Because obviously when somebody lets us go, God is in the middle of doing something that's shaking up our life for maybe um, several reasons because um, I find that, that uh, most of the time God is multitasking and he's trying to accomplish two or three things in my life. But we have this decision. make. What am I going to do next? Am I going to go back to school? Am I going to try to change jobs over here? Am I just going to retire? Uh, These are momentous decisions. But God's will really affects every decision from what car to buy and what clothes to wear to what school to attend or how we perform our jobs. Now, wait a minute. You're saying, well, Robbie, I think you said God doesn't have a specific will for you. But let's take an example. You're going to buy a car. How much are you going to spend on that car? is that a responsible amount of money in light of your income are you purchasing that car because you're trying to have a certain status symbol are you purchasing that car because for for some wrong motivation are you purchasing that car because it's you know it's fully within your budget and you just enjoy that particular kind of... There's nothing wrong with having fun, having a good car or an expensive car that you can just have fun with if you can afford it, as long as you're not saying, okay, well, this this is some kind of status symbol for me and it makes me somewhat better. So we always have to look at our motives for whatever it is that we're doing. What we're doing may not be a matter of God's will, doing certain things, buying a car, buying a house, living in this part of town or that part of town, May not have anything to do with God's uh, revealed will, but maybe our motivations might have something to do with God's revealed will. So we always have to think about whether we got some mental attitude sins uh, that are slipping into it um, uh, in, a, in a somewhat hidden or covert covert way. Um, seventh, if we're if we're doing all things to the glory of God, then even the most minute decision demands some attention in terms of our motivation. Am I doing this to glorify God, or am I doing it to glorify me? And um, a lot of times we can overthink that too. I always have to put that out there because there are some people who the weakness of their self-absorption and their sin nature is to overanalyze every decision down to its most minute component. And, And there are some people who are just for some reason, they're afraid to just have fun. Well, I'm going to, I can afford, God's bless me. I have the money to go spend it on an 80 or $90,000 car. And I can do that and just have fun with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's somebody who's going to say, well, I don't, I think you should spend your money somewhere else. You can go support a missionary. Well, maybe they're doing that too. Okay. You have no idea. We don't know what kind of money other people make. I know people who God has richly blessed, and they can enjoy many material possessions. Nothing wrong with that, and they give enormous amounts of money to missions and to churches and to to, to spiritual things. So we can't know. It's not our job to judge or evaluate. It, but it's our job to evalu, job to evaluate our own motives, and to make sure that if we're purchasing certain certain material things, that we're doing it from the right motives. And that we're because the goal of the Christian life is to glorify God, and to walk within that more circle of uh, moral will. So, not every decision necessarily involves a moral issue, or be a specific will of God in relation to geographical will or operational will. As long as we're walking by the Spirit, as long as we're staying inside that circle that's described by the um, revealed will of God, then as long as we can say, yes, I'm doing this for the glory of God, then fine. And having a little fun in life and enjoying the wonderful things that God may bless us with is not contrary to the will of God. Some people think that way. That's your caveat for the evening. Eighth point. Since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, uh, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. So when we ask this question, how do I know God's will? What's God's will for my life in this situation? We, we, We often are asking God to somehow tell us the right thing to do. And we want him to lift the curtain on the future so we don't make a mistake. But the problem is that we're not looking at decision-making correctly. How we make the decision to do X or to handle situation Y is the test. It's not, are we going to pick curtain one or curtain two or curtain three? The test is, How are we going to think our way through the decision-making process to choose Curtain 1 or Curtain 2 or Curtain 3? Are we going to use the Word of God? Are we going to pray? Are we going to do all the things that Scripture says to do in the process of making that decision? And sometimes we might be surprised. We may choose Curtain 1, and if we got a chance to look at Curtain 2 and Curtain 3, they'd reveal the same thing too. God's more concerned about, as concerned about the process as option A, option B, option C, because if option A, B, and C are all within the moral will of God, and they all bring glory to God, God's more concerned about the process than he is the the final choice. If we're trusting in the Lord with all our heart and not leaning on our own understanding, and we're acknowledging him and all our ways, then he is going to direct our paths, and he is going to bring about the right thing. We have to be the focus on that process to think it through. So, the question then, point nine, and I'll stop here, is there one and only one will for every decision, or is the issue in many decisions, biblical wisdom for living? That's, if there's a title that's used for the way I'm approaching the will of God, it's called wisdom, making choices from the framework of wisdom. That's what Proverbs is all about, skillful application of the word. And so this, this is the focal point, that decision-making is the skillful application of what we've learned from the word of God so that we can build in our lives that which honors and glorifies God and is a testimony forever. So we'll come back next time, pick up here, and start going through some examples where God does have a specific individual will, as well as some other examples of wisdom in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, to think about how we make decisions, why we make decisions, and making decisions that glorify you recognizing that uh, in some decisions there's a specific will that you stated in your word and in others there's not. And we must apply the word and make wise decisions and not necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily involve some, a choice between that which is moral and that which is immoral, but involves that which is uh, the best for glorifying you. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through, understand uh, this very important doctrine. In Christ's name, amen.